0: Stories have been circulating for months about human trafficking and slave markets, with reporting tying the movement of refugees from North Africa into Europe to the emergence of a slave market in Libya. What the international reporting often obscures is the reality that human trafficking takes place in the United States as well. According to Polaris, an organization that collects data on human trafficking, there were more than 8,000 reports of trafficking in the U.S. in 2016. That includes reports of both labor and sex trafficking, although Polaris points out that labor trafficking is underreported in the United States. The data of human trafficking is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's departments of statistics and media, journalism and film, as well as the American Statistical Association. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me in the studio is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami's statistics department. Richard Campbell is away today. Today's guest is Dr. Davina Dargana. She's an international human rights statistician with the Walk Free Foundation. Uh, She's also a researcher whose uh, work sits at the intersection of technology, statistics, and human trafficking. And she's worked uh, on the subject with a number of organizations, including the Department of Justice and Polaris Project. Thank you so much for being here today, Davina.
1: Thanks so much, Rosemary. It's my honor.
0: How did human trafficking become your research focus?
1: Absolutely. You know, human trafficking, when I started looking at this in 2006, wasn't really um, a, a common topic of conversation. I think I remember my parents explaining to people what I was studying and what I was interested in, and they had to define it. And if you can imagine, mm-hmm. in a pre-Liam um, Neeson taken environment, <laughs> <laughs> um, this was this is so amazing to me that now there's so much interest in our work. There's lots of funding going into our work, although... I think any field will always say there could always be more. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm really glad that um we're seeing so much attention to this but initially when I when I came across human trafficking it was actually in an international context and I just was really taken by um by vulnerable vulnerable minors in situations of post-conflict, particularly in El Salvador, Mm -hmm. and um, seeing how a lack of a capable guardian in the form of law enforcement and um, functioning government really made these these children very vulnerable. But I came back to the U.S. and realized it was a problem here, too. So, I mean, I guess... Seeing something that you thought would only be international in your backyard is a huge problem.
2: Uh, let me follow up with a quick question. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious about how, how is slavery formally defined? I mean, one, one question about studying this is just an operational definition of it.
1: Oh, yeah. And it's the, the lack of an operational definition that's universally agreed upon is really a stumbling block in a lot of our work globally. Um, but I would say that the tenets of slavery really come down to the exploitation of one person or multiple people for commercial gain. And that can be in either labor or sex industries, but essentially if someone is working and unable to leave that um, that position, whether it's in sex or labor, and um, someone else is making a profit off of that, and that can be monetary, it can be in terms of drugs, services, anything, then we would consider that to be a situation of um, slavery. Often, in a lot of the work that I do in vulnerability modeling, it gets a little complicated because people start saying, well, you know what's the difference really? Like what is what's the difference between sexual assault and trafficking at the end of the day when you're you're determining vulnerabilities? And at the end really the difference becomes the motivation of the offender. So, hmm. oh. what is the trafficker thinking to do? Are they are they looking to do are they looking to rape someone for personal gratification or are they looking to exploit the sexual assault of an individual or the sexual abuse of an individual for commercial gain?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh since you bring up the issue of modeling, I was going to ask you so trafficking, right, is involves people who are 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 being moved, sort of under the cover of, of legality, right? Uh, uh, it's it's not as though this is a legal thing that's happening. How do you measure the number of individuals who are being trafficked if this is something that isn't? Again, it's not something that you can follow legally.
1: Oh yeah, it makes it very difficult. In fact, I would say that a lot of our work um, is really an underestimate, and and mm. it's shocking given. How high some of these numbers become, but we—I I would still say that a lot of our estimates are still conservative. So we wow. actually just published a report on the Walk Free Foundation working with the International Labor Organization on a joint global estimate of modern slavery based on survey, um, and, a nationally representative survey program in over 48 countries around the world. Wow. And we estimated that in 2016, on any given day, there were 40.3 million people enslaved. But keep in mind, this is based on survey data that is not reaching many populations. So it's nationally representative, of course, meaning that we're not oversampling in very vulnerable populations. We're not identifying necessarily the labor camps or the institutionalized populations, prisons, mm-hmm. um, orphanages, other vulnerable groups. So, I mean, it's it's quite shocking when you think about those numbers and, and how big they sound, but then realizing that we really are underestimating it.
2: So, so how do you even start such a survey? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's really tough. Um, so basically, we started, when we started the Global Slavery Index, we, we began with a partnership with Gallup World Poll. Mm-hmm. And you may be familiar with them. They're public opinion surveys, and they do them in, in very many countries around the world. And essentially, we started by adding time in certain countries dedicated to modern slavery. So basically, we've tried to come down um, on those essential questions that would identify victims of modern slavery or enable them to self-identify um, when interviewed, and often we, foc- we focus on labor exploitation, sexual exploitation, and forced marriage in, in our survey modules. So um, those are the, that's that's kind of the starting point for us. But then we came into the issue where surveys, and especially face-to-face national representative surveys, are not really conducive in developed countries, where if we had a sample of a thousand people in the United States, it's unlikely that we would be able to detect something that's so hidden
2: here. Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: And so now we're looking at different um, approaches, such as multiple systems estimation, where we work directly with governments to um, essentially, it's a capture-recapture method that looks at identified victims across multiple administrative lists, mm. and we try to estimate the unknown or the people that have not been identified based on on that information, the number of repeats of a certain victim.
2: When you talked about slavery, you almost, as part of your operational definition, it sounded like Labor exploitation, sexual exploitation, and forced marriage were were three of the categories that came pretty quickly to mind for you. Would would you say mm-hmm. those are kind of the the, the biggest um, examples of of slavery in the modern world?
1: Well, I think I think there's certainly um, so there are certain types of slavery, um, and and again this comes back to the universal definition, right? So mm-hmm. some people would consider organ trafficking a form of modern slavery. Um, but it becomes very difficult to operationalize um, in in some of these contexts. I, I think the reason we focus on forced marriage, forced labor, and forced sexual exploitation is because those are three broad categories that okay. we think are are pretty um, pretty well accepted in terms of what constitutes modern slavery. And then, of course, there's still um, there's still some debate about like those categories. So, what type? What is the difference between labor exploitation and, and labor trafficking? Um, even in the U.S., we haven't figured this out, so it becomes really <laughs> difficult to, um, to kind of put that external um, that external measure and benchmark against um, vulnerable people. So when we were thinking about labor exploitation, it's an interesting example, because we tend to see that that's also underrepresented in people that are able to self-identify. And we think mm-hmm. um, a lot of that can be attributed to men um, as victims who are in exploitative, very exploitative essentially trafficking um, situations for labor but are almost um, socialized to believe that this type of treatment and behavior and working condition is to be expected given the lack of other viable employment opportunities. So it's it's kind of really so sad that um, that we're really seeing labor exploitation and labor trafficking um, victims having a difficult time self-identifying because this has been so much of what they've they've been socialized and conditioned to accept as normal.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today is the stats on human trafficking and modern slavery. You mentioned the difficulty that researchers have in defining what is slavery and defining what is trafficking. I would imagine that the difficulty you guys sort of face as you're studying this might lead to some frustration with the way the media might be covering it. And I wondered if you could take a moment to maybe talk about what some of your frustrations might be of journalists who are covering the issue of human trafficking.
1: Rosemary, that is such an excellent question. Um, We actually, so I actually do a lot of interviews um, for our Spanish and um, sometimes our French media outlets. Mm -hmm. and. One of the things that becomes really challenging is even as a statistician who, who should be the most comfortable pushing back on oversimplification of our numbers and, and big takeaways, um, I still find it challenging a lot of times to keep sticking to those caveats. Like, yes, we estimate that it's, it's this many thousand people in your country this year, but this is how we derived it. I think one of the challenges I face, um and I, I think my colleagues might agree with with journalists and media portrayal of a lot of this information is that um often we we really are looking for that one big number, that big shiny takeaway, and the caveats sometimes fall to the side or the the details that that make a, a substantial difference to how those numbers are interpreted and used
2: mm-hmm.
1: aren't often the the centerpiece of those stories
2: <laughs> yeah when you when you mentioned the forty point three million people. Yeah. I mean that. I was thinking, okay, how do you propagate error through a calculation like that? How how big is the the interval? You know, if yeah. you were looking at how, how much uncertainty is part of that estimate.
1: Well, and so this is the challenge we we do face. So we we have um, on the International Labor Organization's website and on the Walk Free Foundation website, we do have our technical paper that has standard errors and and all of the the technical detail there, but. To answer your question, I mean, essentially, we are looking at a survey program of 48 countries to give Mm -hmm. us information on just over 200 countries. And so there's a fair (laughs) amount of extrapolation involved in terms of how we allocate slavery proportions by region and then additionally, we had to supplement the survey data, which was really um, comprehensive on forced labor and forced marriage, because that's how our modules were were kind of constructed, with additional information on child sexual exploitation from partners at International Organization for Migration, and, um, and other data sources um, fr- on state-imposed forced labor from the International Labor Organization. So you can even imagine how aside from just the strict extrapolation from our survey program to these over 200 countries we also had to integrate other data sources so it became quite complicated and and not really as as you know straightforward as, as one might you know assume or, or hope that the the state of global anti-slavery data maybe um maybe and so i think as as i mentioned i mean the uncertainty is um i'm pretty confident with for the state of global data, i'm I'm pretty confident with the estimates that we've derived. But the part that still continues to to frustrate me and my colleagues is that there are so many populations that we are just not reaching very well. And I think um Rosemary in her introduction mentioned the refugee population. yeah, mm. and that's another area where really, I don't know that this that a national representative survey can reliably capture populations that are, um, that are so transient and, and being frequently moved and, and discounted within the countries that they're, they're currently residing. So it's, it is a huge challenge. And we are trying um, different things to, to alleviate that and um, like new approaches, over samples and um, partnership with UNHCR, the High Commissioner for Refugee, mm-hmm. and trying to think about different ways to, to measure that to have just better estimates.
0: So given the complicated nature of this data, uh, and that there is so much nuance in it what advice would you give to journalists who are gonna come to your site and, and and try to figure out what kind of story to tell what what advice would you give to them as they were sort of looking through all this data
1: one one good piece of advice I would probably give to them is is essentially the same process I think any um, researcher or academic might use in trying to to Determine what what's the key takeaway from this article, or the you know the key message for this um, this policy application. And I think that would be to really think about what the outcome is that you're looking to to achieve. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of times we report the number, but there's not much context beyond that, right? This number is kind of like a splashy number that's meant to grab attention, but it also serves a purpose, right? So for countries in which that's not a survey estimate, it's it's the product of extrapolation. Let's say. That number should be taken into context with the region, right, to tell you proportionally how are you doing relative to the other countries Mm -hmm. in your area, the other countries that may be similar to you. Um, I think that there's a bit more context that we can think about, but that probably starts with crafting a little bit of the story and doing a little bit of qualitative research as well to understand kind of how to make sense of the numbers that we provide.
2: You know, one thing I'm curious about is uh, what are some of the predictors of slavery, Hmm.
1: Hmm. Yes. Well, that's the part that I'm really most excited about. So we've been working on a vulnerability model um, since the inception of the index. And essentially, the the vulnerability model itself is limited in a few key ways. First, it's a global vulnerability model. So we're dependent on data sources that report regularly and transparently for 167 countries in the global slavery index. So as you can imagine, um, there's not really a whole lot to choose from, but we do optimize what we can find. On the basis of those predictors, though, we we've started and over the years have come to um, formalize more of a grand theory of vulnerability in modern slavery, and we'll actually be um, we're going to be submitting that for publication um, in the coming month. so uh-huh. it's it's quite exciting when we think about how do we how do we disaggregate vulnerability to a point that we can have meaningful policy interventions. And okay. so, two cornerstones of our thinking on um, drivers of slavery specifically have to do with human security theory, mm. which disaggregates vulnerability from this monolithic experience of being vulnerable to a, to anything or to a crime, and breaks it into seven area components that are consistent with the United Nations Development Program's conceptualization of this, which is great for the Sustainable Development Goals and other um, global metrics. But basically, we look at things like food insecurity, environmental insecurity, political insecurity, health insecurity, economic insecurity, personal insecurity, community insecurity. And by looking at things um, in this kind of disaggregated way, it forces us to be more comprehensive about the risk factors that we even include in a model like this, but it also allows us to differentiate. So I think a lot of times people attribute um, or activists may attribute poverty or economic insecurity to a broad range of vulnerabilities to many crimes, not just slavery. But when breaking them up and trying to look at the, the distinguishing um, characteristics of each type of vulnerability, one thing that I found in, in a study I did um, in 2013 and 14 of U.S. minors was actually that among minor, um, citi- minor U.S. citizens and minor foreign nationals in the U.S., victims of modern slavery, they, different types of vulnerability were more relevant for different populations. So mm-hmm. for U.S. citizens, um, we're, we were looking at community and, and personal insecurity, which is fascinating when you think about Robert Putnam and the decline of civil society in America and the implications for that, because a lot of times we're not talking when we're talking about slavery intervention, we're not talking about additional funding for Big Brothers Big Sisters or um, National Court Appointed Special Advocates or other civil society organizations, we're often talking about different types of interventions. So it's, it's just kind of interesting when we start thinking about how we can be more targeted in our um, policy approaches.
2: So are there particular countries where the estimates that you generate, you're very confident with them? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean you've, you've mentioned already that you're doing extrapolation yeah. to some countries, but so let's, take, take the, taking the extrapolation off the table, And just focusing on where you think you have pretty good data in terms of uh, you actually have data from countries, are there ones that are especially good in terms of precision? And can you talk about why that you think those are better than others?
1: Sure. Well, I would definitely start with our survey countries. So I think having um, essentially having countries in which we've we've gone through this process with gallup we have these nationally representative surveys i would say for some developing countries even though we're still missing a lot of our um even though we're still missing a lot of our um i'm so sorry even even though we're still missing a lot of our our very vulnerable populations i still think that those survey countries in developing contexts are really um reliable we also are starting to do multiple systems estimation throughout europe Oh, and in the coming year we've actually we're planning on having results for Serbia, Romania, Belarus and Ireland. So, it would be really exciting. I think I think those types of countries so our survey countries which include um, let's see which will include countries like Afghanistan, Argentina, um Botswana, Brazil, Cambodia, a lot of those countries and and you know, I would feel very confident with um those estimates. I mean again as an underestimate, but still more confident because they are part of this nationally representative survey program, as well as on the developed country side, the ones that we've instituted multiple systems estimation.
0: You're listening to stats and stories and our discussion today focuses on human trafficking. Davina, what stories do you think reporters are missing in all of the sort of information that you and other researchers are collecting on human trafficking?
1: Yeah, something I think that reporters might be missing um, really focuses on the cultures that lead to underreporting among certain populations. Huh. So one narrative that's not being captured quite accurately in our numbers is the extent of labor exploitation of males. Mm-hmm. And, and I mentioned earlier, part of that is self-identification, part of that is just horrendous labor conditions that are kind of been normalized. But I think um, media and the public can can really contribute in a meaningful way if they start to think about how we can address this culture of labor exploitation. So how do we get the message out about what labor, basic labor rights, are inherent in each country? How mm-hmm. do we how do we start to flip the the script on labor exploitation from potential exploitative employers to empowering those that may be um, taken advantage of?
2: So let me follow up with that. You you had talked about the idea of exploitation and trafficking and sort of confusion about this. Can you mm-hmm. could you just go through a little bit of clarification of traffic, you know, labor exploitation, labor trafficking? How do those differ? How would someone know, you know, how would someone know if they've they're being exploited versus a, <laughs> a victim of trafficking? Can you give examples to illustrate?
1: Yeah, that's a great that's a great um that's a really great question. So I think of it more of a continuum, more of a spectrum. So on the one end of the spectrum, I would say there's labor exploitation, and that could range from anything, essentially from um, unpaid internships mm-hmm. to um, low wage workers that are just about just below um, minimum wage. Let's say, um, mm-hmm. so you've got like legal compliance issues there, but largely people are free to leave. Essentially, if you had one of those positions. No one's um, detaining your documents, no one's threatening your family, no one's making threats against you. You could leave that situation. On the other end of that spectrum, um, you're gonna have a lot of the same behaviors. You're going to have poor working conditions, exploitative um, employers, but at the labor trafficking end of the spectrum, you will not be able to leave that position. And that could be because you're physically detained or, or prevented a freedom of movement, Or it could be because threats are being made against you and your family. So I think the range of of experiences um, can vary a little bit. But at the end of the day, labor exploitation would mean um, that although you were facing difficult and terrible labor conditions, you were still that are not in compliance with your local federal wage laws, you would um, still be able to leave. Whereas in a situation of trafficking, um, typically you would not be able to leave.
0: So it seems like globally and domestically the issue of labor trafficking is underreported or seems to be underreported. Are there other things that are leading to this underrepresentation or underreporting of of labor trafficking in the the larger statistics? Yeah,
1: I think well so aside from self-identification which is going to be most um most um, easily visible in our survey, our nationally representative survey results, because of course that's that's always going to be very challenging. So even um, another challenge we have with self-reporting of course is trafficking of minors, of children.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so our surveys, we can only administer them to people that are 15 years mm-hmm. of age and older. Okay. And so often if we ask somebody about a situation of modern slavery, they're going to be reporting about themselves or someone in their immediate family. But that that information is often not as robust. If I, if you were to ask me, like, what's going on with my um, my child in, in and who's been working as a restivek in um, the city, I pro- I may not have a very accurate sense of what their experience has been like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to weight those um, those reporting um, items accordingly. I think something else that's contributing to the challenge around labor exploitation is that we are not quite, um, in a national representative survey, we are also presumably missing out on informal, um, labor camps and places where migrant workers and others might be, um, might be concentrated. Mm -hmm. So because our survey, um, sampling frame is based on, um, census data, essentially government officially held government census data you're You're looking then at populations that could be hugely dense um, that just won't be captured appropriately in the sampling frame. you
2: know it sounds like a, what your group is doing is working very hard to establish baselines and mm-hmm. and baselines for this problem, and then ultimately with the hope of designing and then maybe promoting interventions to yes. try to reduce this. So what are some of the ideas of of interventions that that you would would advocate and that you would like to study and investigate?
1: Absolutely. You know, this is actually really a great question, John. So I, one thing I was remiss in doing is that we do have some partner organizations that take a lot of this type of research a step further. So we have colleagues in London, um, they're based in London, it's called the Freedom Fund, and they do a lot of hotspot intervention work. So they'll look at a lot of the survey data, we're, we're partner organizations, so we often freely share information. And um, and and so they'll say, let's pick this um this community in India, and they'll they'll test an intervention in that context. And mm. um my colleague Yuki has done some really fascinating research in testing um testing the effects of certain interventions on um on populations, and that could be sex worker um sex worker engagement and awareness. Um she tells a, a really funny story about how sometimes um by trying to empower sex workers into to, to Um, hire them as interviewees, as interviewers of other um, potential victims, they run into the challenge where the pay that they are earning as um, an interviewer isn't often as lucrative as their sex work. So sometimes Mm -hmm. people will kind of end a shift early, an interview shift early to then go and um, participate in sex work and then return to it. So it's kind of interesting when you think about that the realities of implementation um, of these types of intervention on the ground and and even research in this field on the ground. Um, And we have really excellent partners that are um, executing that.
0: You mentioned Taken at the beginning of this conversation. (laughs) Um, And I'm thinking, too, there's been a lot of reporting about the slave market in Libya. There was a lot of uh, reporting this time last year, I think, about, um, you know, the, the fishermen in Southeast Asia who were basically enslaved to sort of you know fish for shrimp and things. And I'm wondering how much are you as a researcher when you're trying to present this information, working against uh, media representations of slavery, be they good or bad, right? I would I would wager a guess that taken is probably not the most uh, representative <laughs> um, representation of sort of modern slavery. So how much of, when you are thinking about how to package your information, are you thinking about how to counteract, things that are circulating in mass media
1: yeah that you know that's a great question and taken for what it was um you know it still elevated the issue of slavery Mm -hmm. in the U.S. context in a way that that spoke to people right so I think there are always going to be subsections of the field and of the advocacy world and anti-slavery work like you know Sexual exploitation of children, for example, yeah, will have an important and meaningful role in this space. And if it brings more awareness and more funding to this issue, then I I very rarely have an issue with it. Yeah. Um, The interesting example you raised, though, about the slave markets in Libya, I've been asked about this so many times, and the one thing i keep coming back to is that i think actually the publicate like the public public the publicizing of those slave markets is so important mm-hmm. because for a long time as an international community we've been really ignoring the tremendous risks that we've been placing these refugees under i mean we've been we were aware that there's a crisis in syria we're aware that um, they're going to be, continue to be more environmental refugees, more civil conflict um, refugees. We're going to have this as a part of our, our world dynamic for the foreseeable future. And I think we've almost kind of pretended, you know, oh, well, this is happening somewhere else. It's not quite our responsibility. This isn't a problem that really affects us. And I think showing that this is happening, that people are are so emboldened as to, the disregard of these of these people these refugees that it's not enough that they're being drowned and turned away at borders at at, at ocean borders there it's now that they're physically being sold in a market and, and what that tells me really is that the level of um public acceptance of the mistreatment of these people has risen astronomically so people could have always you know had slave markets online or surreptitiously and, you know, behind closed doors, but the fact that they would have one in a rather public setting is, yeah. is quite disturbing because it really shows the extent to which we've ignored the plight of a lot of these refugees. So from my perspective, I think one thing the media does really well is that they do humanize this issue. And by raising, raising this, they're not allowing people to turn away and say, oh, but it's, you know, the refugee issue is complicated, but we don't know what to do about it. I mean, this is kind of saying, like, the worst human rights abuses are happening to these people. And There's a really wonderful quote um, by, I believe it's William Wilberforce, but it's essentially like, you can, you can choose to do nothing, but you can never again say that you didn't know, right? So at least this is raising the issue to the point that people are aware of it. And, and now the burden to act really falls on our shoulders.
2: So suppose someone's really inspired by this conversation or by the work that you're doing. What are some of the skills that someone would need to to work in this area to be able to contribute, whether it's to the methodological components or to investigating this problem?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people do seem to be very interested in getting involved in my in our in our field. And something I'll always say is that there is there is space in this field for everybody. So there are really inspiring stories of um truckers against trafficking. So these are truck drivers that um, advocate against the commercial sexual exploitation of minors at truck stops they are you know active in that space there's a tattoo artist association that's really focused on branding tattoos that are being used on on people and and raising awareness of that in their industry so um, in general I think any skills you have if you're interested in legal work if you're interested in um, social work if you're interested in advocacy or even you know, corporate social responsibility, I think there's a lot of ways that you could be involved in this. For example, Marriott um, Hotel, they, they do some really interesting things about human trafficking awareness um, because their hotels may or may not be used for sometimes um, some, some of these sex acts. Um, so I think examples of companies like that that are taking initiative and responsibility is really amazing. Um, in terms of the methodological side, I would say we always need better researchers. So we're always going to be in a situation of imperfect data, of messy data, of trying to make sense in a social science and international affairs context of this type of research. So I think if, if you're interested in working on a global scale, if you're interested in and looking at comparative regional analyses of slavery, or even any other human rights issues, having a solid background in like a social sciences that can be matched with the technical skills of statistics or um, any kind of data analytics really um, would be so amazing. And and especially now, if you're if you're young and you're still learning, or if you're not so young and you're still learning, um, <laughs> I think you know things like. I've always loved Bayesian analysis and we're starting to look at how to use that more to integrate expert input and iterations of modeling that can be more sophisticated. You know, machine learning is is something that many of us can, you know, teach ourselves essentially at the very basic levels. Um, different types of programming languages are always super useful. So that's something that I, I find very funny is that, you know, Stata is very common with, you know, the UN organizations that we work with or, um, some of the government organizations, but then now, for you know for its uh, <laughs> it's free cost, often we're, we're looking to use R and and different things. It's kind of exciting, but I, I would say if there's something that you like and that you're passionate about to just pursue that and just continue to apply it to the slavery field. and and I'd, I'd love to make myself available to to any student or any person that's interested in trying to figure that out because we definitely need um, more brain power and more uh, more committed people on this field.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Uh, Davina, Durgana, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you both. I really appreciate it. It was great chatting with you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes if you'd like to share your thoughts on the program. Send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.